It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. America's enormous prison population, John Pfaff. The only countries in the world even close to us were places like Russia, Cuba, Kazakhstan. Uh, sometimes people criticize me by saying, oh, but these tallies miscount North Korea and Iran. Which I say, if that's your argument, <laughs> like, if you're yeah. bringing out North Korea and Iran, like I've won. Like, like, I, like, I, I'm willing to concede that if we're third behind North Korea and Iran, we're basically number one for what should matter. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, the number is 2.2 million. Yeah, that's the, huge. The number of people locked up in federal, state, and local prisons and jails. The U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Yeah, that's not a list you really want to be number one on. No. <laughs> <laughs> and in recent years, there has been bipartisan support for criminal justice reform to lower the prison population. But there's been a glitch. Right. And so... Attorney General Jeff Sessions seems like a throwback to like a 1970s law and order mentality. Right as conservatives and liberals were coming together to rethink this whole situation, here he comes with a real old-fashioned law and order approach. Yeah, or ordering prosecutors to pursue the strictest charges and sentences in criminal cases. So now we have to ask ourselves whether the incarceration rate will go back up. John Pfaff is our guest, the author of the book Locked In. John is a law professor at Fordham University and a University of Chicago-trained economist. Music to your ears, right? Yeah. (laughs) John, welcome to our table. Thank you so much. So, John, you say that America's prisons are too full for our own good. Why? So... The incarceration rate is about five times what it was in 1970, and our crime rate is the same as it was in 1970. Yeah, that's a shocking statistic. And there's no reason to believe that we're five times more prone to offending today than we were in the 1970s. In fact, if anything, the country's probably less sort of prone to crime now than it was back then. So, so the millennials, the much maligned millennials, they're, they're a more peaceful group than, than the boomers? So the thing about crime is people age into and age out of crime. You start becoming sort of trending towards crime in like your – you know, you're 14, 15, early teens, become violent in your late teens. And then by your 20s and 30s, you start aging out. Hormone level shift, marriage, jobs. And I think a demographic factor that's gone completely uncommented upon is that the millennials are just as big a cohort in absolute number as the boomers. When the boomers moved in their peak crime age, crime rates went through the roof. The millennials are in the process of aging out of their peak crime age. So the crime drop took place during the period when this 
giant cohort of people who have been mocked in line for all sorts of reasons, aged into and then aged out of, of crime. So right now, one of the things that has really intrigued me is this consensus for some kind of criminal justice reform. And it, what's been so gratifying is you see it coming from both the right and the left, one of the rare areas of common ground. So for me, it's been particularly demoralizing to see this uh, Attorney General Sessions, who seems like a throwback to a kind of a 70s law and order mentality. How harmful is his new approach? So I think the overall impact will be pretty minimal. Uh, so the thing you realize is that his decision only applies to federal prosecutors and the federal criminal justice system. And of those 2.2 million people locked up, and, and to be clear, there's about 1.5 million people in prison, and we say about 750 people in jail. That's where we get 2.2 million. And what prison is, is prison is where you go post-conviction for a felony, at least a year or more. Jail is either for a misdemeanor, which is a year or less, or pretrial detention. On any given day, there's 750,000 people in jail. So the total number moving through the jail system is on the must order of 10 to 12 million per right. year. So I, I fear that when we talk about sort of 750,000 people in jail, we actually dramatically downplay how important jail is. Because if somebody gets arrested and they spend, you know, two months in, in jail, maybe they're not even convicted in the end of a crime. But imagine the enormous damage that does to their ability to hold a job, to their family, to their prospects in life. Physical and sexual assault, disease, STDs, HIV, tuberculosis. I mean, jails are horrible places and it doesn't you get fired from your job. And we churn a massive number of people through jails. Um, so, so we have this federal, state, and local system. Right. And uh, of those 1.5 million people in prison... Only about 200,000 are in the federal system. About 1.3 million are in the states. And, and the federal system is the result of people being charged and convicted in the federal court system. Exactly. And there's only a very limited range of crimes that can get you hauled into federal court. Oftentimes, it's guns and drugs. Um, so the feds have a very strong gun and drug focus. But the states are a much different view. And Sessions doesn't really tell the states what to do. So I think the impact will be slight. So the Sessions announcement will not necessarily increase America's overall prison population. Not If it does, it's going to be something very, very small. What accounts for this really high rate of incarceration? From 1925 to around 1975, we looked like every other Western country in the world. Of every 100,000 people in the country, 100 were in prison. Um, and that was about what it was in Europe and Canada and other countries we tend tend to look to. 1972 is the last sort of all-time low, and it slowly crept up. And I wouldn't say the U.S. incarceration rate boomed. It didn't. It was just a slow, steady, unrelenting growth, unseen here or abroad, for 40 years. And by 2010, our prison rate was about 500 per 100,000. Prison and jail came to around 700 per 100,000. The only countries in the world even close to us were places like Russia, Cuba, Kazakhstan, uh, sometimes people criticize me by saying, oh, but these tallies miscount North Korea and Iran. To which I say, if that's your argument, like, if you're yeah. bringing out North Korea and Iran, like, I've won. Like, like, I, like, the, I, I'm willing to concede that if we're third behind North Korea and Iran, we're basically number one for what should matter. So there's this new partial consensus that we need some kind of prison reform. Your book is really a warning that a lot of the ideas we have about why we have so much incarceration are actually wrong. You, what you call the, the standard story. Explain what you mean by that. So what I call the standard story are kind of the, what I see is the three biggest arguments people bring out to explain why we have so many people in prison. And it's the war on drugs, it's incredibly long sentences, and it's the private prison industry. And none of those is wrong. Right? The war on drugs has sent people to prison more so than we need. The, our sentences are longer than those in Europe. And the private prisons, at least as we use them here, 
do more harm than good. But each of these masks a deeper and more important explanation and oftentimes makes us unwilling to confront that deeper explanation. So yes, 60% of people in prison are there for drug charges, but 52% are there for committing violent crimes, right? So it's much more driven by violence than, than by drugs. Uh, yes, our sentences are long, um, but not as long as people think. I recently asked a room full of undergrads at a very good liberal arts school, like, how long do you think someone convicted of violence spends in prison? 20, 30, 40 years. The median time to release for violence is four. The median time to release for, for property or drugs is one year. Longer than Europe, but not that long. What's drive it is admissions. And admissions are driven by prosecutors. And because we focus on time served, we've ignored the prosecutor. And yes, private prisons do harm. But the fact is, is 92% of all people are locked up in a state prison, a publicly funded prison. And we ignore the role of politicians. And I think even worse, we ignore the role of correctional officer public sector unions that play a much bigger role than these private firms. So how does that work? So the guard unions themselves have a tremendous amount of money at stake. You know, while, while the private prisons earned $400 million in profit last year, guards earned about $25 billion in wages. And, and they are a force for keeping the prison population high? Because they want to keep the jobs. They don't really care about the population. They just want to keep their jobs. Uh, so, for example, in New York State, we've actually shed 25,000 prisoners since 1999. It's actually the longest sustained decarceration in the United States. But we spend more on corrections today than we did back then because we keep all these prisons open that have almost no prisoners in them because the union is effective at keeping them open so they don't lose the jobs. Before we get on to solutions and how we might reduce the extremely high prison population, I'm going to surprise Jim and, and sound a little reactionary. I, I live in the city, and I don't want violent criminals walking down my street. I want them locked up. So whenever I argue we need to change our views towards violent crimes, I, I'm the kind of person who reads the comment section in articles, and one of the first comments, inevitably, is this is great as long as I live near you, right? That's the put down. I'm like, I live in Brooklyn. Like, they do, right? Yeah. And, and I still stand by this position. And the first thing I'd say is I try to push back against ever using the word violent offender. Because we call someone a violent offender. That seems to define that as who they are. This is a violent person. But violence is a phase, not a state. Like I said earlier, people age into and age out of violence. So in other words, they're much more likely to be violent at the age of 15 or 16 or 17 than they are at the age of 35 exactly. or 40. Hormone levels change, testosterone levels change, you just get older and creakier, uh, you get a job, so you're not hanging out with your friends doing dumb stuff, you have a partner, so you're off with them instead of hanging out with your friends and again, getting drunk and doing dumb stuff. Uh, one of my favorite papers ever shows that whenever we release a horror movie, like one of the Saw movies or anything like that, that Friday night, violent crime drops precipitously. Wow. Because all these young men who would otherwise go to bars and get drunk and do dumb stuff and get in fights, go to the movies and then go home. So it's up to Hollywood to come out with a really good horror movie every week. I would argue that probably the biggest return on investment in crime fighting has been the Saw franchise. You know, <laughs> cheap, cheap to make, but they, they have these great Friday night impacts, right? And so I think part of the problem we have is that we tend to throw away the key when we do, just as people are starting to get old. Like, you don't get your third strike at 15. You get your third strike at 30, 35, 40, just as you're aging out. Also, prison's just not an effective way to address this. Right? There are better policing interventions we can use that, that not only reduce crime as effectively, if not more so than prison, but have far less 
cost. And I think that's the part we lose sight of when it comes to prisons. Yes, prisons keep us safe, but we don't live in the heavily policed neighborhoods where prison can have an incredibly distortionary, profoundly harmful impact, right? Prison is a vector of tuberculosis and, and sexually transmitted diseases. It increases the risk of, of children perhaps committing crimes themselves from not having a parent at home. In some high crime, some high enforcement neighborhoods, so many men are in prison that it actually throws off the dating market. Right? Dating markets need 50-50 gender ratios. In some areas, it can hit 60-40, female-male, and that makes family formation very difficult. It leads to the risk of drug overdose upon release from prison. Like, there's a massive amount of costs that I think the politically powerful groups, the, 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 the gentrified parts of cities, the suburbs often said disproportionate power, they feel that benefit. Right? They know I'm not going to get mugged, but it's not their uncle, their nephew, their son, their brother who's the one who's dying from an unnecessary drug overdose, who's disappearing from the family, who, who's no, who they have to spend thousands of dollars to visit because this prison is 300 miles away from where they live, and any effort to stay in connection requires you to get, you know, not work two days a week and pay hundreds of dollars and collect phone calls and get on a bus and get a hotel. I mean, it is a profoundly destructive institution that has some benefit, but those costs are concentrated amongst the most politically powerless of us. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guest is John Pfaff of Fordham University. We're talking about his book, Locked In, and America's Very High Incarceration. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. Let's go to solutions and... Start with the real solution being at the front end, you say, uh, not at the back end. So what do you mean? Right. Most reforms focus on two things, cutting the amount of time people spend in prison or expanding parole options. My argument is the fact that prison growth is not really driven by people serving long sentences. And almost everyone who is serving a long sentence is there for a fairly serious violent crime. Yeah, they're not they, all in there for, for having a joint on the street That corner. That low-level, nonviolent drug offender serving 50 years, almost they make the paper because they don't really exist, right? Much more day-to-day are going to be people serving short terms, and if they are in prison for 10 or 11 years, you know, 75 to 85% of them are there for a violent crime. About you no know, a quarter of those are, are in for murder or manslaughter, right? So there's there's... You know, it's it's much more we need to focus on perhaps not sending people to prison in the first place. That we, that we don't need to admit so many people, and that much of our growth has not come from people serving longer and longer and longer sentences. Our growth has come from us sending more and more and more people to prison. The number we admit every year rises and rises. And the the problem with our focus on the back end is that we ignore the person who drives it on the front end. The person most responsible for prison growth is the prosecutor, the local county elected prosecutor. 
Um, there are about 2,500 of these offices scattered across the country. And they really have been at the heart of this, at least you know, since the 1990s. And the basic story is this. Since 1991, crime has been dropping and arrests have been dropping. So fewer and fewer people have entered the criminal justice system. But we're filing more felony charges against them. So you get arrested. What's the chance that the DA says, I'm going to charge you the felony? It's almost doubled. Why is that? I mean, it, that seems so counterintuitive. So we don't have a great idea for two reasons. One, because we have no data on what prosecutors do. Um, in fact, my data on what prosecutors do came from the court system. The prosecutors are very quiet, but the moment they file a case in the court system, the courts start keeping records, and then you can sort of figure out the DAs are doing through, the, through court records. Um, but also, I think in part because we have no data, we've ignored prosecutors. And my favorite example of this is that even though my work shows that DAs drive what's going on, they are really the most important person in all this. When Hillary Clinton rolled out her end-to-end criminal justice reform plan, she talked about police and she talked about parole. It wasn't end-to-end. It was end and end. And she completely <laughs> ignored the middle. Prosecutors have so much discretion that they could basically end all this tomorrow. We don't need any law changes at all. If the prosecutors just stopped being harsh, this whole problem would, would come to an end. So what are the incentives that are driving this? And Did they change? Did they get more intense? So part of it, as far as I can tell, is that there's a very interesting hiring story. Again, it's boring, but it matters. As crime was rising sharply between 1970s and 1990s, we hired about 3,000 more prosecutors nationwide, from 17,000 to 20,000. From 1990 to 2008, as crime fell, and as serious crime fell dramatically, we hired 10,000 more prosecutors, from 20,000 to 30,000. So crime's going up, hire 3,000. Crime's going down, expand by 10,000, three times as many. And we don't really have good measures of how productive individual prosecutors are, but based on all the various proxies I can sort of back out, there's no evidence that a prosecutor today is any more punitive or aggressive than a prosecutor in certainly 1990, if not in 1970. We just have more of them, and they've got to do something, right? You can't sit in your office all day playing Minesweeper and then keep your job <laughs> the next day, right? Are there, uh, is there another factor that get tough prosecutors, prosecutors who talk tough, that those kinds of aggressive prosecutors are more likely to be elected than prosecutors to go, actually, it's a little more complicated than that. If we had done this this interview a year and a half ago, I would have said they're the only ones who can win are these tough on crime prosecutors. 2016 was actually a very interesting election cycle because as much as Donald Trump managed to successfully use sort of this carnage in America rhetoric to, to help win at least electoral college, a lot of smart on crime, let's not be quite so tough prosecutors uh, managed to defeat incumbents who are much, had much tougher old school views. So there is a shift taking place in, in attitudes. But traditionally, you're exactly right um, that they tended to win. First thing you realize, we are the only country that elects prosecutors. Yeah, I mean, prosecutors are really running as politicians. Right. Um, and so part of it could be that, that they live in constant fear of sort of the Willie Horton. Right? They might not really want to be that punitive. In fact, the average American isn't as punitive as our policies are. But they're afraid that one bad case is going to bite them. So explain that you in in your book you call it the Willie Horton effect. For those who weren't around back, I I forget that people who not uh, ever lived through the the 1988 presidential election. Yeah, Um, that's kind of a long time ago. It is sadly a long time ago. Um, So Massachusetts years ago had what's called this furlough program that would allow people in prison to go home for the weekend to sort of either get more reintegrated um, or in case of Willie Horton, who's actually a prisoner in Massachusetts who's serving a life sentence, at least maintain family ties while in prison. And the program had an amazing success rate. Over 99% of all those released came back without incident. But one guy, Willie Horton, didn't. He ran away. 
And the next year, he broke into a home and he brutally raped the woman who was living there and beat up her boyfriend really badly, got rearrested and sent back. And the Bush campaign, so, the so first George right. Bush, used that case to argue against Michael Dukakis, who had been governor of Massachusetts, who ran as the Democratic candidate in 1988. Exactly. They produced this incredibly racially charged ad. Willie Horton was a very large black man. His victim was a, an attractive white woman. And you know, they made this ad very sinister and menacing, a sort of black men are threatening white women kind of ad, and, and aimed it at Dukakis. What's the successful argument? that was used by prosecutors running for office against more hardline people they opposed. Part of it is that the people in those communities that bear that cost of over-enforcement have become much more vocal, and they're pushing back more strongly. Uh, there's also a sense that... What, Black Lives Matter being Black part Lives of Black Lives Matter is being a big part of that, yes. I think the budget crisis has played a role. This sense that prison's just too expensive. Yeah, that, I um, wanted to ask about that. I mean, it, prisons are really expensive. Sort of, right? In that, but they're <laughs> stop being contrarian. I, I can't, I can't help our, it. My favorite Come kind on. of guess. <laughs> I mean, that's my favorite answer. <laughs> we spend about fifty billion dollars a year on corrections nationwide, but you know, states and local governments spend about three trillion dollars on government. Right? It's about five to six percent of state budgets. Right? It's, so it's not zero, um, but it's not going to be the thing that if you cut it, your budget crisis goes away. But it, but in a time of of low crime, high incarceration, and collapsing state budgets, it is an obvious place to target. Um, what's tricky though, again, is of that fifty billion we spend, half of it is wages. Right? So the only way you're going to get savings is if you fire people or lay people off, and that's really hard to do. And states are very good at not laying off guards. Pennsylvania closed two prisons and laid off three guards. So people talk a lot about sentencing guidelines, right? but you also talk about charging guidelines. How does that work? So these have been tried to almost nowhere in the country, but I think they make a lot of sense. Prosecutors right now have amazing amount of discretion. I, I think people understand sort of how much control they have. The police arrest someone, and this guy shows up before a prosecutor. The prosecutor can choose to drop the charges or go forward, and that's completely unreviewable by anyone else. No one can appeal that. I mean, there might be internal rules, but there's no – no one can appeal to a judge saying you shouldn't try this case. Or and, and they can also make secret plea deals too. Right. And so first they can decide whether or not to drop the case at all or not. They can decide whether or not you can get diverted to like a drug court or an anger management court. They then decide whether or not you face a felony or a misdemeanor if they're going to go forward. And if they charge you with a felony, they get to decide whether or not you face a mandatory minimum or not. Right? We talk about all these mandatory minimums. Those are binding on judges. But for every offense that has one of these mandatories, there's another equal offense that doesn't. And DAs have complete discretion to choose which one they're going to charge you with. And so it's a huge amount of discretion. And what's important to realize is being done by prosecutors maybe two years out of law school. Right? These junior-level assistant prosecutors, I mean, they have a BA in English and a law degree, and they're being forced to decide who to charge with an offense, like who's at risk of recidivating, who's not, like who needs the felony. Recidivating meaning re- Repeat offending, right? Yeah, like is this yeah. a one-off case and like we don't need to send him to prison? Is this guy going to be a hardcore offender who for years who we should lock up now? Like these are very complicated psychological policy questions, and we're asking lawyers with no training to, to make them. But when we look at prosecutors right now, you're describing the extraordinary discretion they have. Right. Do they have too much power? I think so. I, there's no other actor who has that level of unfettered discretion. Um, you know, we, we, we tie judges' hands all the time with these guidelines because we don't trust judges to make good decisions. But the irony is that a very large percentage of judges, before they became judges, were prosecutors. Right. So why is it that we trust them with unfettered discretion? When they're right out of law school. And at their most powerful. But when they're a judge handling a much narrow issue, that's when you don't trust them at all and we got to tie their hands. Right? It's, it's almost completely backwards. Let me ask you about the New York City example. 
purely because I live here and I know a little bit about it, there are a lot more police on the street today than there were 30 years ago. What role can hiring more police as opposed to lengthier prison terms play on reducing crime? Is that more effective? Far more effective. That what deters crime is the risk of getting caught, not the sentence that gets imposed, right? The sentence that gets imposed, it's going to be, it's going to be months or years before it gets imposed. And then it's going to be served over the course of years. People commit crimes are young. They're 18, 19, 20. They're not 20. thinking about three years from now. Yeah, they're not planning. Well, for the next 25 years, they're 18, right? If anyone, anyone who says like a long sentence deters, either it hasn't met an 18-year-old and wasn't themselves an 18-year-old, right? Or forgotten who they were when they were teenagers, <laughs> right? It's not just like they haven't met them. Like you were, remember when you were 18, did you honestly think, well, 30 years from now, this is, no, you didn't. And Yeah, I better start putting money in my 401k. Right, exactly. <laughs> and especially given the fact there's evidence that those who tend to engage in antisocial behavior that tends to result in, in arrests, they tend to put even less weight on the future than sort of the average person, right? What they are concerned about is like the cop on the corner who's going to stop. But I could get arrested tonight. Right. So um, on paper, prison is a place where people are supposed to get rehabilitated from crime. A lot of doubt whether that happens. But there are ways to help people reenter society. What do you recommend? So one thing to realize is that any rehabilitation program works better outside of prison than inside of prison. Right? So unless you're generally concerned that the person poses a serious risk to other people, you don't need to lock them up to actually have the treatment program work. It's better to keep it closer to home. So – on the topic of solutions, yes. so we've got now, I think, a much more nuanced understanding of the problem, uh, but we're still coming back to these prosecutors. Right. How do we start changing those incentives? Like I said, prosecutors are elected by the county. They are county officials, most of the time pay for the county budget. And again, boring but relevant are budget issues. Jails, where misdemeanors go, and probation are paid for by the county as well. But prison is paid for by the state. So you go to prison if you get a felony. I see where you're going. (laughs) You go to prison for a felony, jail for a misdemeanor. But if you're a prosecutor, it's actually cheaper for you to send the person to prison and get him off your books and onto the state books than do something smarter and more at home that's less harsh and actually perhaps helps reentry better because that's actually can come out of the county budget. And I know from someone, a colleague of mine in the state where judges are elected at the county level, the judges have told her, we pay attention to this, that we send too many people to jail and not up to prison. The county machine gets mad at us because we're driving up county costs. And so one approach would be to sort of make prosecutors pay attention to the costs they're imposing on the state. And this is called realignment. In California, it's called realignment. So what California has done in California, California is kind of a very special case. First of all, when we talk about how prison populations have dropped since 2010, the U.S. incarceration rate has fallen by about 6%. But over half of that drop has just been California. So what has California done? So California has adopted this thing called realignment. But the core idea of it is that for certain kinds of low-level, what, what they call sort of low-level offenders, if they're non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual – even if you're convicted of a felony, even that felony carries a four, six, eight-year prison sentence, you have to serve it in the county jail. And the effort was, you know, and the goal there in some extent was to make the counties pay attention. But it worked in California. And there, I think there are other ways we can try to make county prosecutors pay attention to costs, give them quotas, or create sort of state-level guidelines that restrict how often they can send people to prison. Something that says you have a huge moral hazard problem and we want to make you Pay attention to that. So prosecutors and incentives, fascinating arguments. John Pfaff, author of Locked In, a new book about America's very high rate of incarceration. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
So, Jim, first things first. I think we both agree with John Pfaff's argument that the prison population is just way too high. And, and, and the number that really stuck at me, we now have a crime rate in the United States. It's about the level where it was in 1970. And yet we have five times as many people per crime uh, in prison today. The numbers are murky. And th- these questions aren't so easy to answer. But what we do know... I think is really supportive of of his point that people are more afraid of getting arrested than they are influenced by the length of the sentence. I thought was uh, one of the things he said that I thought was one of the most interesting things that John Fass said is is that when you're 18 years old, you're not thinking, well, I mean, if if, the difference between a four year sentence and a five year sentence is not not changing about that, you're not changing your behavior, but the likelihood of getting picked up for a crime um, very possibly is. And then right at the center of John Fass argument is saying that prosecutors are the key, that if we had more supervision of prosecutors, if prosecutors were encouraged to consider alternatives to long prison sentences in many cases, that that would make a much bigger difference to this extremely high rate of prison population that we have now. I think that's such an important point. This is something libertarians have been saying for years. It's one of the, one of the key things that often sets libertarians apart from conservatives is this idea that prosecutors have way more power than is really safe in a free society. The incentives that prosecutors have to overcharge are really powerful. Yeah, and I guess something that I didn't know before, in fact, I didn't know this before, there's a lot more supervision of judges on sentencing rules than there, than there are for prosecutors on charging guidelines. But here's where you see The Economist in, in John Pfaff. It's this idea that everyone responds to incentives. Not everything that goes right or wrong in society happens because people are good or bad. Prosecutors, in many cases, are making rational decisions that are in line with the incentives we've put before them. And how do we change those incentives? Also, John talked about how rehab works better outside prison than inside prison. That's really important when it comes to reducing the future crime rate. So this is not just an argument for reducing the number of people in prisons. Right, it's also right. making a better society. Right. There's something encouraging here, and and I think that, that let's hope that this hiccup with Jeff Sessions as Attorney General doesn't do too much damage to the momentum for continuing to look at some kind of prison reform. Long overdue topic for us to talk about, um, criminal justice reform. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And it's How Do We Fix It? Produced by Miranda Schaefer. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for joining us.